The great 18th century English theologian and evangelist John Wesley once said of Christians, you have one business on this earth, to save souls. The fact is, throughout history, this world has been shaped in large part by men and women who have made it their business to do just that. In 2013, 25-year-old American aid worker Kayla Mueller was abducted by ISIS fighters in Syria, where she was held captive for 18 months. During her imprisonment, she was verbally, physically, and sexually tortured over and over and over again. Yet, despite numerous opportunities to convert to Islam and end her suffering, she not only refused to convert, but she fiercely defended her Christian faith to her captors instead. When the chance for escape finally came, she decided to stay, telling the other two girls who were held with her that she had been protecting the entire time, that her American appearance would endanger them, so she let them escape while she stayed behind. Soon afterwards, Kayla was killed, and just before her death, she wrote in a letter, I have surrendered myself to our Creator, because literally there was no one else. And by God and by your prayers, I have felt tenderly called, cradled in freefall. In 1945, after the Communist Party in Romania seized power, a million Russian troops poured into that country. And although Romania was consequently liberated from German occupation, the Romanian Jewish community continued to experience heavy persecution under their new Russian leadership. Among those Jews was a Christian pastor named Richard Wormbrand who made it his personal mission to not only minister to his fellow oppressed countrymen, but also to evangelize the occupying Russian soldiers. As a result of boldly spreading the gospel among them, on February 29, 1948, Pastor Wormbrand was kidnapped by the secret police on his way to church. He was imprisoned and put in solitary confinement for three years in a cell that was 12 feet underground with no lights and no windows. No sound, no light, and no human interaction for three excruciating years. He later explained that he maintained his sanity by sleeping during the day, staying awake at night, and exercising his mind and soul by composing by memory and then delivering a sermon every evening. After his release, he immediately went back to preaching and evangelizing and ultimately spent more than 14 years in total in over a half a dozen different prisons where he was often brutally tortured in ways that we cannot and do not want to even imagine. Writing about his experience in one of those prisons, he said, It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. Pastor Wormbrand went on to author 18 books that have reached a worldwide audience, and he also founded Voice of the Martyrs, an international organization that supports and defends the human rights of persecuted Christians and provides relief aid for their families all around the world to this day. In about A.D. 110, a pastor from Antioch and a disciple of the Apostle John, a man named, a man named Ignatius, upon being condemned to die in Rome for his stand for the gospel, wrote a letter to one of his friends just before he was led to the Colosseum in Rome to his death. Knowing he would be facing either death by burning or death by crucifixion 
or death by being strapped to a searing hot iron chair and made to run through a gauntlet of wild animals that were chained up close enough to reach out and tear at his flesh as they ran by, one of the Romans' favorite ways to kill people. Knowing one of those means of torture was to be his fate, Ignatius wrote this in a letter to his friend. It is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one by being faithful to the end, then I can have the name. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus Christ. Ignatius was one of the most influential Christians immediately following the apostolic era and an early church father. Long after he was gone, his ministry, writings, and influence on the still-fledgling Christian movement helped shape the worldwide church for generations to come. According to early church history, the apostle Paul was beheaded, Peter was crucified upside down, Thomas was run through with four spears by soldiers in India, Philip was tortured to death in Asia Minor, Bartholomew was flayed to death with a whip in Armenia, Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia, James the son of Alphaeus was stoned and then clubbed to death, Matthias was burned to death, John was exiled to the island of Patmos after being boiled in oil in Rome, and James the brother of Jesus and pastor of the church in Jerusalem was thrown off of the southeast pinnacle of the temple for refusing to deny his faith in Christ. It was more than a hundred foot drop, and yet he miraculously survived the fall, so his attackers beat him to death instead. Although those first century disciples were mercilessly persecuted for their faith in Christ, they, along with the Old Testament prophets who were also persecuted for their faith, are the very foundation of the church with Jesus Christ, of course, as the cornerstone, according to Ephesians 2.20. The contribution to the church and indeed to the world of these heroes of the faith really cannot be overstated, and yet what they were able to accomplish for the sake of the gospel did not come without a heavy price. The fact is, there isn't one person in all of biblical scripture or among the great men and women of the faith since, for that matter, who found following God to be easy. So why do we think it should be easy for us? Why do we immediately back away from sharing the gospel with other people the moment we're met with the slightest resistance and then we say things like, I don't mind witnessing to people, but I'm not going to shove it down their throat? Was well, that because we don't like making other people uncomfortable or is it because we don't like making ourselves uncomfortable? Why are we happy to give out of our abundance but not so much out of our need? Are we trusting in God or are we trusting in our income? Why are we willing to take risks for something we want, but not so much for something God wants? Who are we actually living for, him or ourselves? Because the truth is, in our culture today, listen, including our church culture, we are obsessed with comfort and security and prosperity, despite the fact that Jesus flatly rejected all of those. In fact, he consistently led his disciples into a completely different way of living, one that was so deeply and radically committed to the cause of Christ, to the gospel of Christ, that no sacrifice, no risk, and no cost was too great. Now, 
Think about that for a minute. And then be honest with yourself. Are you actually willing to sacrifice everything? Would you literally risk it all? Are you prepared, honestly, prepared to give up all that you have in service to Christ if that's what he called you to do? And listen, before you say yes to that, it's important you understand something. It's important for you to understand that that is in fact exactly what he has called you to do. You see, if you're a follower of Christ, everything you have, including yourself, belongs to him, not you. Your money, your time, your abilities, your possessions, your schedule, your marriage, your kids, your heart, your mind, your intellect, your aspirations, your plans, every single part of your life belongs to Christ now. Every bit of it is his. Listen, to do with what he pleases. The Apostle Paul said it this way, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13, because you're not your own, you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Just think about that. If you are a Christ follower, your life, all that you are, everything that you have, every bit of it, it all belongs to him. And here's why that's not just some uh, theological concept that we nod our heads to every time we hear it in church because when you come to truly accept that everything that you have and everything that you are is actually his and not yours once you accept that it will utterly transform the way that you live your life each day from day to day just like it did for those early disciples because look it is far simpler to lay down what you have no claim to to risk what is not yours and to give away what doesn't belong to you in the first place. Right? Listen, if, if someone handed you $1,000 and said, can you please put this in the offering plate when it comes by, or can you please give this to that person over there who needs it, you wouldn't think twice about doing what they ask you to do because it isn't your money. Right? You're just handling it for someone else. But to take $1,000 out of your own wallet, or out of your own checking account, well, that's something altogether different. Why? Because that money is mine. You see the difference, right? We smile and we say it all belongs to Jesus until he tells us to give it all away. You understand, this isn't a sermon about money. This is a sermon about everything. When that person hands you that $1,000 and tells you what to do with it, you have absolutely no right to do anything other than exactly what they ask you to do with it because you have no claim to that money. You're getting the picture. Everything you have, including your own life, was handed to you by God every single moment of every single day. And he's telling you what to do with every single bit of it, which means you have absolutely no right to do anything with any of that other than exactly what he's asked you to do with it because you have no claim to any of it. You're simply handling it for him. The breath in your lungs belongs to him. The blood in your veins belongs to him. 
the beating of your heart, the plans you make, the possessions you have, every thought, every intention, every motive, every aspect of your life, and your life itself belongs to Jesus Christ. Which means every time you try to keep what you have from God or from doing what he's instructed you to do with it, it's the same as taking that thousand dollars from that person who asked you to give it away and instead you put it in your pocket and you walk away. Which sounds ridiculous to us because we wouldn't do that to someone else except for the fact that most of us do exactly that to God every day. Look. This is one of those hard lessons that Jesus taught his disciples that they had to get before they could go one step further with him. If their lives are going to move forward with Jesus, they were going to have to learn and accept this truly life-changing lesson first. And so he did something radical to teach it to them, first by example as always, and then by sending them out to walk it out themselves before he continued on with them, as we're going to see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the gospel according to Mark. And listen, it's exactly the same for us today. This is a lesson that you must embrace and actually walk out in your daily life or you won't go one step further with Jesus. In fact, This is precisely why a lot of Christians can't seem to make any progress in their journey with Christ. Because until you get this lesson and learn to live it out in your life day after day, he's not going to entrust you with anything more than what you already have. That's why Jesus said, one who's faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Luke 16, 10. Because when you try to keep what God has given you to yourself, You're being dishonest because you're keeping something that doesn't belong to you. It's just like putting that $1,000 that someone else handed you in your pocket and walking away. And so it was time for these first century disciples to be taught how to give away what they'd been given before they could go any further with Christ. And listen, it's time for us 21st century disciples to learn that same lesson if we're going to move forward with Jesus as well, which is, uh, it's not always an easy way Just to be honest with you, that's not always an easy way to live your life. But look, following Jesus was never meant to be easy. Let's pick the story up then where we left off last time and see what we can learn from Mark at chapter 6. We'll begin by reading the first six verses. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did... Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? They took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So up to this point in the story, Jesus has been ministering to people in the region around Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee. But now Mark says that Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And of course, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but Nazareth was the village where he grew up, covering really only about 60 acres on a rocky hillside, roughly Uh, 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum. Nazareth at the time 
actually was a very small, quite obscure uh, little village of no more than about 500 residents. In fact, just to underscore how obscure the town was, Nazareth is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament or in any of the other well-known ancient historical writings from that time period, including the writings of Josephus, uh, the first century Jewish historian, or in the Mishnah, also known as the Oral Torah, the first major written record of Jewish oral tradition, nor is Nazareth mentioned anywhere in the Talmud, the central text of rabbinic Judaism. In fact, the first time Nazareth is actually ever mentioned in a written record outside of the handful of references in the New Testament is not until almost two centuries later by a little-known, undistinguished writer named Julius Africanus. The point being, Nazareth was this micro-village where everyone knew each other and nothing noteworthy ever occurred. Otherwise, there would have been much written about this place like there is about all the other villages and cities that Jesus visited. And so when Jesus and his disciples come strolling into town, first of all, everyone would have noticed. And secondly, they all already knew who he was. This was Jesus, the neighborhood kid who learned the trades from his father and whose family still lived there. And so it makes sense that when he begins teaching in the local synagogue, everyone is shocked because Jesus has no formal theological training. He has no religious pedigree. He hasn't been mentored by another rabbi. He's just the local carpenter's kid, except that now he's a man and he's teaching in the synagogue with an authority and an understanding that they've never experienced before. And so they get really worked up. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And listen, uh, just to be clear, these were not kind words. In fact, they were being quite nasty, vulgar even, in their treatment of Jesus. The word carpenter in that verse is the Greek word tekton, which means builder. It's where our English word architect comes from. And interestingly, it's used to refer to a stonemason in ancient literature, including uh, biblical literature, just as much as it refers to a carpenter. Uh, in fact, if you read 2 Samuel 5.11, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons who built David a house. If you read that verse in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, the words carpenters and masons in that verse are the same Greek word, tekton. And then when you consider the serious lack of timber and the great abundance of stone in Palestine, it's highly likely that Jesus was probably just as much a stonemason as he was a carpenter, which sounds great to us, except for the fact that being labeled as a general construction worker, particularly in this Gentile world that Mark was writing to, was not a complimentary way to describe someone. As a matter of fact, uh, throughout the centuries, people have tried to discredit Jesus because he was a tectone, a carpenter, or even the son of a carpenter. Origen, the second century scholar, early church father, he was certainly one of the most important Christian theologians in history. He records a man named Celsus, who was a well-known opponent of Christianity at the time in the second century. Origen writes that one of Celsus's main arguments against Christianity was that its founder, Jesus, was nothing more than a carpenter by trade, and I'm quoting. In other words, he's just a lowly construction worker. In ancient Rome, there was a terrible 
uh, persecution under the emperor Julian. And there was a well-known philosopher at the time who mocked one of the local Christians there asking him, well, what do you think the carpenter's son is doing now? To which the Christian replied, he's building a coffin for Julian. <laughs> but you get the picture. Calling Jesus a carpenter was actually a slur against him given what he was doing in the synagogue and yet his former friends and neighbors went on to say something far worse about him when they referred to him as the son of Mary because Judaism at the time was what is referred to as a patronymic uh, culture. That means the, the names of the children were attached to the name of their father just as we use surnames today. And so the father's name was kept as the family name even after the father died, same as in our culture. And so for these Nazarenes to call Jesus the son of a woman would have been bad enough of an insult by itself, but it's even worse because they refer to him as the son of Mary. And what they meant was the illegitimate son of a woman because, of course, nobody was buying the virgin birth story at this point. Uh, in fact, it is written in both the Talmud and the Midrash that Jesus was born out of wedlock, his mother having been seduced by a Gentile man named Pandera. So make no mistake about it. These friends and neighbors of Jesus are dragging his name through the mud with their vulgar remarks, which Mark makes clear when he says they took offense at him, the word offense being the Greek word skandalizo, which as you can probably imagine is where we get our English word scandal from. And of course, we know from back in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 21, that Jesus' family already thinks he's gone a little crazy. And so in response to all of this, keep in mind, Jesus is there trying to heal people and help them. In response, Jesus quotes what actually was a well-known Hebrew proverb at the time. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And then Mark tells us that Jesus could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, which doesn't mean, by the way, that Jesus lost his power or that he was limited in his power because of their lack of faith. No, God is sovereign no matter what we do or believe or don't believe. His power is the same. He's unchanging and immutable. It simply means that they wouldn't receive the good news or the good gifts that he was offering him just as they wouldn't receive him. So he couldn't do mighty work there because they were rejecting him. They didn't want what he was offering. And so Mark says something that is mind-boggling to me. Mark says that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Think about that statement. What does God, the God of the universe, what does he marvel at, right? What, what in all of time or creation could possibly cause the God who created all of this and all of us to actually marvel? What could God possibly marvel at? And of course, Mark tells us. It's the fact that there are actually people who willingly refuse Jesus and what he freely offers us. That's what God marvels at. It was a sobering moment for Jesus and his disciples, and it was also the first part of the lesson he set out to teach them on this trip. The fact that moving forward with Jesus will cost you friends and family. Uh, I've, I've certainly lost friends because of my stand for the gospel. 
I have family members who can't talk to me about my faith without cursing and calling me names. We have lost members of our church here, people dear to me because I refuse to water down the gospel. And listen, it still surprises me every time the fact that there are actually people who willingly re reject Jesus and what he offers them. And honestly, uh, one of the hardest parts of following Christ for me to accept has been the stark reality that solely because you are a friend of Jesus, there are people in this world who will not be friends with you. Even sometimes people you've been very close to. And look, Jesus needed, listen, he needed his disciples to see this firsthand because he knew it was going to happen to them too, as we'll see. That's why he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26, by the way, that word hate in that verse was a Hebrew idiom. It meant to love less. In other words, anyone who does not love me more than his own family and friends cannot go any further forward with me. Why? Because inevitably, at some point on this journey, there will be family and friends who will reject me, Jesus says, and then you will have to choose between following them or following me. So you might as well get that sorted out right now before we go any further forward together. This is a lesson they were learning here at Nazareth firsthand. Okay, look. I know we want everyone to like us. I wish everybody liked me, but they don't. And when the reason they don't like you is the fact that you aren't willing to stop following Jesus long enough to start following them, they will kick you to the curb before you even know what happened. And listen, if you're anything like Jesus, you will marvel at that when it happens. That's what he did. And yet even more importantly, look at what Jesus didn't do. He didn't chase them around begging them to like him. He didn't compromise his message so they would like him. He didn't change the meaning of his unchanging word so they would like him. He didn't try to act like them so they would like him. He didn't criticize the church so they would like him. He didn't tell them it was okay to believe whatever they wanted to believe so they would like him. He didn't tiptoe around their feelings so they would like him. He didn't give them whatever they wanted so they would like him. He didn't try to make the gospel easier to swallow so they would like him. He didn't try to convince them he was cool so they would like him. He didn't tell them what they wanted to hear so they would like him. He didn't tell them he was just one of many ways to get to heaven so they would like him. He didn't avoid the subjects of sin or judgment so they would like him. He didn't try to blend in with the culture so they would like him. He didn't make it easy to follow him so they would like him. And yet all of that is a fairly accurate description of much of the modern church today because we're more obsessed with pleasing our culture than we are with pleasing God. Okay, as Christians, we have to get over this idea that everyone should like us and accept the reality that sometimes following Jesus means other people will not only reject him, but sometimes they will reject you because of him. And so to get that point across, Jesus marched his disciples 
right into the thick of it, right into his own hometown to show his followers that not everyone is going to accept him or them, even friends and family, the people closest to you, which means you have to choose right now who it is you're going to follow before you can go any further forward with Jesus. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So straight out of this hard lesson at Nazareth, Jesus begins to send his disciples out in pairs to do the work that he's been doing, to share the gospel, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. And he tells them what to do when people reject them, which means there must have been some people who did in fact reject them, otherwise Jesus never would have told them, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And of course, they've just experienced that exact scenario in Nazareth with Jesus. So they understand now both from his teaching and from firsthand experience what to do, except except Jesus raises the stakes even further this time around by telling them, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Uh, in the ancient world, when you traveled, you often had to sleep outdoors. So you always took two tunics with you, the second one to serve as a covering to protect you from the elements at night, sort of like how we use a tent for shelter when we're camping outside. And so Jesus was not only saying to them, <clears throat> go out and do the work that I've been doing into places you've never been, where you'll be dependent upon other people taking you in and giving you the food and shelter and provisions that you need to live on. But also... In some of those places, the people are going to reject you just like they did with me at Nazareth. In other words, in some of those places, the people are not only not going to listen to you, but they're also not going to take you in and provide the food and shelter and provisions that you need to live on. Oh, and one more thing. Make sure you don't take with you any of the food or shelter or provisions that you will need to live on in those places where the people will reject you. Why in the world would Jesus say that? Well, it's the second part of the lesson he was teaching them. Moving forward with Jesus will cost you comfort and security. So you might as well get it straight now. Listen, the hard truth is, there is no scenario where you truly answer the call of Christ on your life and everywhere he sends you, your comfort and security is guaranteed. This idea that Jesus wants you to always be comfortable and secure is a paper-thin fantasy that has absolutely no basis in the teachings or example of Jesus Christ and his disciples, including every disciple of Christ who has ever truly answered his calling on their lives right up to today. Amen. 
The fact is, Jesus routinely and quite intentionally sends out his followers into places and circumstances that are anything but comfortable or secure. Okay, well then, what did the disciples do when people rejected them? Did God miraculously send in a warm front at night while they slept in a garden full of ripe fruits and vegetables? No. In fact, I guarantee you those boys spent many a night cold, wet, and hungry, huddled somewhere off the roadway out of plain view because of the danger of the bandits who traveled the roads at night looking for easy victims, but not too far into the bush because of the bears and wolves that roamed the night looking for an easy meal. I'm convinced this is at least part of the reason Jesus sent them out in pairs instead of alone, because he knew that at times they would be in places and situations that were far from comfortable or secure. And yet today, when someone asks us to witness to a friend about Jesus, or to work in the nursery at the church, or to give a substantial amount of money to a need, or to serve the kingdom of God in any way that is other than what we really prefer, we have to pray about it first. Really? Why is that? Well, it's because those things threaten our sense of comfort or financial security. I'll just tell you, sometimes I wonder what it is we're really trusting in. What are we following? When we stumble over such simple decisions for Christ, and all the while, he's calling us to turn the world upside down. Can't you see? This is exactly why he wants us to leave everything behind. Because he doesn't want anything to stand in the way of you going to all of the places and doing all of the things that he's planned for you. But you'll never go to all of the places, and you'll never do all of the things as long as your life is tethered to everything we accumulate that makes us feel comfortable and secure. Look, as long as you, as long as you continue to insist on comfort and security in your life, you will always be restricted in how far forward you can go with Christ, because I'm telling you where he's going, it ain't going to be comfortable or secure for long. Not by a long shot. And I'll be the first one to tell you, letting go is not easy. But Jesus never said it would be. In fact, at times, it's not supposed to be easy or comfortable or secure. Let's finish our story for today. Verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he'd married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? 
And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. What a sweet family. When his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Herod the Great ruled over Palestine as a vassal king, a subordinate king to the Roman Empire, and when he died, his kingdom was divided into four parts, one part to each of his sons. One of those sons, Herod Antipas, the Herod in our story here, uh, was made tetrarch. Tetrarch means ruler of a fourth, and he was made tetrarch over Galilee and Perea. And 30 years into his 43-year reign, he starts hearing rumors about a man who could perform amazing miracles which troubled Herod, Herod greatly because in, ancient, in the ancient world it was common uh, to believe that resurrections always preceded a great judgment. And since up to this point, John the Baptist's popularity and fame had actually overshadowed Jesus, Herod assumed that Jesus must be John the Baptist resurrected, come back from the dead to judge his enemies. And of course, Herod being chief among those enemies, because as explained in the story we just read, Herod was responsible for the death of John. And of course, we learn later of Herod's future involvement in the death of Jesus as well. And so in that sense, John the Baptist's death is an ominous foreshadowing of Jesus' own sacrifice in the very near future under the rulership of this same Herod. And as sad as the story is for John the Baptist, the greater point to be made here, which is also the last part of the lesson that Jesus' disciples had to learn before they could continue on with him any further, is the fact that ultimately, moving forward with Jesus will cost you your life. That was true of John the Baptist, even though most of his ministry preceded Jesus's, that was true of those early disciples as we saw at the beginning of this message and it has been true for men and women who have chosen to follow Christ down through the ages and although that isn't always a physical death, it is always a death. Before being martyred in a Nazi concentration camp in 1945, the great German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words. The cross is laid on every Christian the first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to his death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. There's no getting around it. There are no exceptions and there's no easy way out. Following Jesus Christ means dying to yourself, and you're not going to be able to go any further forward with him until you make that choice. You'll know, by the way, when that death has occurred. In fact, everyone who encounters you 
will know when that death has occurred because of the new life that it produces in you. It's a radical life that no longer clings to the comfort or security this world has to offer, a life that no longer is captive to the influence of the cultures of this world. It is truly the ultimate testimony of someone who has died to themselves and now lives a new life in Christ. Fact, if you took the time, as many people have, to try and prove or disprove the validity of Scripture, you would ne inevitably find an embarrassment of evidence in support of the biblical record. We just went through a lot of that in our series in Genesis. The truth is, there's an abundance of historical, archaeological, scientific, and circumstantial evidence that supports the claims of the Bible, with more of all of that being discovered almost continually. And yet the most powerful evidence that we have available to us in support of biblical scripture and the gospel specifically is actually not scientific. It's not historical. It's not archaeological. And it is not circumstantial. No. The single greatest proof of the truth of the gospel is not found under a microscope or through a telescope. It is not found in the ground or in a museum. The single most compelling evidence of the validity of the gospel is the human heart that has been completely transformed by it. Why? Because it shows up in the radical, unfettered, and undeniably free life that the true followers of Christ live by. It's a fact. The greatest proof of the gospel is the people who are changed by it. The people who follow Jesus, even though it cost them family and friendships. The people who have abandoned the need for comfort and security. The people who have died to themselves and discovered instead a radically new and transformed life, one utterly free from the endless trappings and empty promises of this world. It's not an easy life. But Jesus never said that it would be. Andrew, one of the 12 disciples of Christ, was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. So after seven soldiers whipped him severely, they tied his body to that cross with cords to prolong his agony. Later, his followers reported that when he was being led toward that cross, he saluted it and said these words, I have long desired and expected this happy hour. Jesus never said it would be an easy life. What he did say is that everything you have and all that you are, including your very life itself, belongs to him, not you. You're just handling it for him while you're here on this earth, which means, it means you have no right to do anything with it other than exactly what he's told you to do with it. And until you get that, you're not going to be able to go any further forward with Jesus. Listen. It all starts by learning this very simple and yet profoundly important lesson. You have to let go. You have to let go of everything that tethers you to this world so that you can freely follow Christ wherever he decides to lead you. And that, that is how you move forward with Jesus. Let's pray.